This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're going to hear from an old pal uh, in our second segment today who's moved from um, this radio station. And when I say that, I mean both stations which uh, on which this program airs, KZFR and KDVS, to um, the wide world of WNYC in New York, which along with KQED is one of the uh, top two NPR stations in the country. We expect to have him share a few tales of what it's like to work in this uh, exalted atmosphere. Guest I'm referring to is our good pal, Stephen Valentino. No relation to Rudolph Valentino, but oddly enough, a relation to moi. But uh, he didn't land this gig due to connections. We know he's a solid guest in our second segment today. Let's begin this program as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date in question being the 13th of January. And I must say, it's a pretty eventful day meaning we ha- may have more than our usual number of, uh, of entries in this. Let's start with January 13th, 1404. The English Parliament passes the Act of Multipliers, which prohibits alchemy, the making of gold from base materials. This law was passed despite the fact that no one had ever succeeded in doing this. In fact, changing one uh, type of element to the other was quite impossible until the modern era of nuclear physics. On this date in 1610, the Italian astronomer Galileo discovered the fourth moon of Jupiter, Callisto. Oddly enough, he discovered the other three six days previously. I guess Callisto, by sheer chance, must have been behind or in front of Jupiter. On January 13th in 1842, a British army doctor reached the British sentry post at Jalalabad, Afghanistan. There he found the lone survivor of a 16,000-man-strong Anglo-Indian expeditionary force, that was massacred in its retreat from Kabul. Afghanistan, the graveyard of empires. By the way, for keeping track, our war in Afghanistan is now the longest-running war in U.S. history. There's talk of pulling our troops out uh, by uh, July, but uh, no one seems to know how to end this fiasco. Wars, after all, are easy to get into, but hard to get out of. Of course, this quagmire we find ourselves stuck in isn't all bad if you're a military contractor. Let's not go off on that today. January 13, 1898, French writer Émile Zola wrote his inflammatory editorial entitled J'accuse. The letter exposes a military cover-up of evidence that French Army Captain Alfred Dreyfus, convicted by secret tribunal and sentenced to life in a penal colony, was, in fact, innocent. Dreyfus was innocent. Oddly enough, was convicted a second time so that the military wouldn't lose face, but then pardoned. Zola, for his pains, I believe, had, had to go into exile for a while because he was very unpopular for his act of crusading for the truth. Today's date's a red-letter day for radio in a couple of aspects. First, January 13, 1906, Scientific American magazine runs an advertisement for a radio receiver and transmitter, the Temilco. It was priced at $8.5, included a spark coil and a four-cell dry battery, and was guaranteed to receive signals from as far as a mile away. Things progressed, though. Four years later, January 13, 1910, New York's Metropolitan Opera took part in the first live radio broadcast of opera. 
transmitting strains of Pagliacci and Cavalleria Rusticana. The broadcast could only be heard by a few amateur hobbyists who had built their own radio receivers, possibly based on what was advertised in Scientific American. On this date in 1929, nearly 50 years after the famous gunfight at the OK Corral, American gambler and lawman Wyatt Earp died quietly in Los Angeles at the age of 80. We would refer you to our own archives for an interesting discussion about Wyatt Earp and his brothers, one we conducted some years back with historian Roger S. Peterson. Look for it in our archives. And speaking of troop withdrawals, it was, it was on January 13th in 1972 that U.S. President Richard M. Nixon announced that 70,000 U.S. troops will leave South Vietnam over the next three months. That reduced the U.S. troop strength there by May 1st to 69,000. All the American troops returning home in boxes was proving very unpopular, so Nixon made it instead an air war, which I'm guessing made even more money for military contractors. But lest we end on a down note, let us note that on this day in 1962, January 13th, Chubby Checker's hit, The Twist, became the first song to reach the number one spot on the American music charts twice in two years. The Twist had already been at the top of the charts in September of 1960. All right, our quote of the day comes from Henry Ward Beecher, who said, The difference between perseverance and obstinacy is that one comes from a strong will, and the other from a strong won't. Our quote of the day comes from the immortal Frank Sinatra, who said, Las Vegas is the only place I know where money really talks, and it says goodbye. Our joke of the day comes from film director John Waters who recently told the London Guardian that he's maybe lost his subversive edge. He admitted that ever since he was a teenager, he wanted to shock and terrorize polite society. Said Waters, My parents never blamed the crowd I ran with. They knew I was the bad egg. Added Waters about his own uh, body of work, I don't think the word trash works anymore, and I would never utter the word camp. Said John, My tax form should say, Irony dealer. I must confess I am not a fan of his work, although his anti-smoking spot that ran in theaters some years back uh, is a hilarious bit of comedy, and if you've never seen it, check it out on YouTube. I'm sure if you punch in John Waters and smoking, it'll come up. Our stat of the day, and this is a bit of a sad one, is that sales of fuel-efficient small cars were flat last year. Sales of the leading hybrid, that would be the Toyota Prius, declined 1.7%. What's the sad part? The further sad part is that sales of mid-size sport utility vehicles jumped 41%. Come on, people. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week a couple weeks back for women's rights after a Pakistani man was publicly beaten by two of his three wives who accused him of having a secret fourth wife 
and of planning to marry a fifth. Said Mian Ishak in his own defense, I'm willing to swear on my life that I have only three wives. A likely story. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for literature when it was revealed that an Alabama publisher said it would release an edited version of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in which the 209 uses of the N-word will be replaced with slave. Boy, we can't wait to see what these guys do with Roots, Shakespeare, and the Bible. I think it's pretty much universally agreed that the N-word has to go, and that's why if you turn on black entertainment television, you'll probably find that it's no more than 10% of the vocabulary. And uh, there, it's not balanced off by being great literature. And finally, it was an ugly week, perhaps, for non-believers. When it was reiterated recently by Harold Camping, leader of the nationwide Christian radio ministry, that without a shadow of a doubt, May 21st, 2011, will be the Day of Judgment. This correspondent would like to make a standing offer to anyone who is concerned about being taken up in the rapture, that we will be happy to take over the maintenance of your home if you will simply deed it over to us. And to those of you who have written in suggesting that we go down and speak with Harold Camping and his believers in Oakland, well, we're thinking about it. We'd also like to cite the Week magazine's Only in America section for this item. U.S. high school students are increasingly reluctant to shower after gym class and sports. U.S. school officials are reporting that, um, sensitized by the general erosion of privacy in the Internet age, most students are dousing themselves in body spray and shower at home. Adrian Aliquin of Florida was quoted as saying, Group showers are way too weird. I don't want to see another guy like that. Chris, we suspect that the ubiquitous presence of camera phones are leading to a little bit of shyness on the part of high school students. I was fairly irked a couple years back when it was announced that you couldn't use your cell phone in the locker of my uh, health club once everybody's cell phone got a camera in it, but oh well. All right, we find ourselves in a rather unique position in this program of having to give an attaboy to Pat Robertson. To quote from an article by Sanya... Somashikar in the Washington Post. Televangelist Pat Robertson has made inflammatory remarks in recent years that offended gays, Muslims, and others. But a recent comment he made on his Christian broadcasting network was more notable for whom it pleased, people who want to see marijuana legalized. Said the 700 Club host, we're locking up people that take a couple of puffs of marijuana. Next thing you know, they got 10 years. Adding, I'm not exactly for the use of drugs, don't get me wrong. But I just believe that criminalizing marijuana, criminalizing the possession of a few ounces of pot and that kind of thing, I mean, it's just, it's just costing us a fortune and it's ruining young people. The article noted it was a surprising admission from a Christian conservative and favorite target of liberals who have pounced on his assertions that the earthquake that devastated Haiti's capital last January was caused by a pact with the devil or his remarks that Hurricane Katrina was punishment for abortion and the country's general moral decay. As is fairly obvious, we're not huge fans of Pat Robertson, but, you know, he's got it right on this one, and to that we say, well done, sir. A couple weeks back, we asked for uh, some feedback on um, the greening of American rooftops, and Jim has written to tell us that he may have some uh, information for us, and we... Look forward to bringing him on the show in the next few weeks to talk about uh, living roofs. 
having vegetation above your ceiling. It's an interesting concept, and we'll uh, look forward to that discussion. On a rather disturbing note, we'd like to uh, cite an article from The Economist, noting that uh, by the end of this year, the Earth's population will hit 7 billion. Yes, we've apparently added another billion in the last decade. This correspondent would like to note with some horror that when he added to the world's total by one, there were less than 3 billion people on Earth. Yes, less than half of what we have now. That's a discussion for another day. Here's an item we absolutely cannot resist on this program. I was unaware of this fact, and I suspect you were as well, dear listener, that the East Bay, right here in Northern California, was the birthplace of the squeegee. Article I saw in the Fremont Argus by Dave Newhouse, writing for the Bay Area News Group, said the following, Among mankind's greatest inventions are discoveries, the automobile, airplane, baseball, light bulb, jazz, telephone, radio, penicillin, motion pictures, television, rock and roll computers, and of course, the squeegee. Apparently, Oakland was where the squeegee was invented in 1936 by the late Ettore Stecconi, an Italian immigrant and window washer. Tired of using old tools and rags to wipe glass clean, he came up with the rubber tip squeegee and changed window washing forever. Stacconi founded a company that is still with us. Apparently, Ettore Products, which moved from Oakland to Alameda five years ago, produces six million miles of squeegees annually. They do have one American competitor, Unger of Connecticut, but Ettore Products has branch offices in Amsterdam and China. Said the chairman of the board and daughter of the founder, Diane Stacconi Smolik, My dad said if he ever made $50,000 a year, then he did his job. He never borrowed money to build two factories, a house, anything. His best earning year, 10 to 12 million. Apparently he started his own company in Oakland in 1936, the same year he conceived of the squeegee, and he received a patent for his invention two years later. A patent he apparently later lost because of a scheming former employer. But it's all got a happy ending. Apparently the warehouse-sized building in Alameda has 50 employees, They're currently working four-day weekly shifts to prevent cutbacks during this recession. Anyway, don't you love stories like this? All right, here's a story we like a lot less. Apparently overhauling his team, President Barack Obama last week named banker and seasoned political fighter William Daley as his new chief of staff. The choice of Bill Daley immediately brought protests from the left flank of the Democratic Party, where advisors questioned his insider ties to Wall Street. On the other hand, centrists, business leaders, and Republican lawmakers rallied around the move. Of course, Obama's hopes for a second term will be shaped largely by how the economy does. I don't know, on this issue, we kind of have to line up with what's described as the left flank of the Democrats. Banking executive Bill Daley, who's by the way, brother of Chicago Mayor Richard Daley, was the guy who spearheaded the Democrats' efforts in uh, election 2000 to fight the fight in Florida. As you'll all recall, he did a hell of a job, which, of course, is why Al Gore took his rightful place as U.S. president the following January, back in 2001. Not. So we can certainly see why he's popular with Republicans. Of course, not to get too, uh, too wrapped up in the bashing Obama bandwagon, although he certainly deserves a bash here and there. 
Michael sent me an email a couple weeks ago uh, with the title, Remind me again of what's so great about Obama. First question this email asked was, If George W. Bush had doubled the national debt, which had taken more than two centuries to accumulate in one year, would you have approved? And the answer is no. In fact, we did not approve when George W. Bush, in fact, did that. Remember how when Bush was debating Gore back in 2000, the big, the big beef on the Republican side was why the Democrats are not going to give back the budget surplus? Remember when there was talk about an actual budget surplus? Just to note, we've been consistent on this program that spending money like drunken sailors on shore leave, running up huge national debts, is something we, we don't think is such a great idea. We also thought it was a pretty dumb idea when George W. Bush was doing it. Where were all these protesters then? But here's the item I like best out of this particular email. If George W. Bush had Britain the first president to need a teleprompter installed to be able to get through a press conference, would you have laughed and said this is more proof of how inept he is on his own and how really controlled by smarter men behind the scenes? Implying, of course, that that astute master of the press conference, George W. Bush, was both eloquent and his own man because he didn't rely on a teleprompter? Is, is that what's being alleged? Because, man, I think I'm getting a headache right about now. I think somebody's misunderestimating George. Anyway, as far as it, uh, as far as it goes, selecting a uh, political hack to please your opponents, comma, politics as usual, comma, I'm shocked. Shocked! You all remember that scene from Casablanca, don't you? How can he close me up? On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. Yes, yeah, shocking you know that gambling is going on here. And by the way, wasn't Claude Rains the greatest character actor ever? He offsets Errol Flynn in Robin Hood. He offsets Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca. He offsets Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia. He was a hell of an actor. Our good pal Will Durst is currently on vacation. He'll be back later in the month. So for some acerbic commentary, we'll have to go instead to the Sacramento Bee editorial pages. As you may have noted earlier this week, the college football title was finally awarded to Auburn, which edged out Oregon in a pretty exciting game that we note threatened to delay Dr. Andy Jones's hosting of the pub quiz over at the Bistro 33 in Davis, which uh, brought an end to the, uh, the utter fiasco that is college football. Noted the B staff, not all that long ago, New Year's Day was heaven for college football fans. The culmination of postseason games that recognized excellence, it featured four major bowls, the cotton, the orange, the sugar, and the rose. These pitted the best national teams against each other and determined the national champion. Today, however, too many bowls reward mediocrity. This season is particularly putrid. 14 participating teams at 6-6 six and six didn't even post winning records during the regular season. Note to the B, there are just too many games. 34 plus the BCS championship game. That compares to 18 as recently as the 1996-97 season. That means that 70, 70 of the 120 eligible colleges were in bowls. They asked who's to blame. As usual in big-time college athletics, it's money. Universities want the payout from bowls. Cities hope for a tourism boost. Corporations buy sponsorships to raise their profiles, such as Champs Sports Bowl, Little Caesars Pizza Bowl, 
Meineke Mufflers Bowl. I mean, the B went easy on them. I'm looking at the list they published. There was the Chick-fil-A Bowl in Atlanta, the Capital One Bowl, one of my personal favorites, the Military Bowl, which did not feature any teams from the Academy. In fact, it was East Carolina at 6-6 six and six versus Maryland. Last month, they had the Beef O'Brady's Bowl. Christmas was all started off by the New Mexico Bowl, which, oddly enough, did not feature any teams from New Mexico. But I guess you qualified if you were from a state that bordered New Mexico, since BYU played University of Texas El Paso. Not to engage in conspiracy theories, but how is it that when Oregon is playing for the national championship, it's not in the Rose Bowl? Yeah, the Rose Bowl, which used to be the Pac-10 versus the Big Ten, this year featured TCU versus Wisconsin. Now, Wisconsin is from the Big Ten, but Texas Christian University is definitely not a Pac-10 school. I guess it's now the Pac-12. So anyway, if, if like us, you're not looking forward to next year's GoDaddy.com Bowl or the BBVA Compass Bowl or the Pinstripe Bowl, well, I don't know what you can do about it. Write letters, I guess. I think alumni are some of the worst offenders in all of this. Note of the B, coaches love bowl games because it gives them bonus practices, a leg up heading into next season. But all that extra time makes an even bigger mockery of the term student-athlete. They suggest that next time your school gets a bowl invitation, even though it didn't have a winning season, show some pride and send it back. Well, to the Sacramento Bee, we say we are with you on that one. But let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. 